Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Dealmakers ILF podcast series. In today's episode, our student Nicholas Bonilla and Dr. Conrad Ruppel, our lecturer at ILF, are talking about crypto assets and their regulation. Nicholas is a Colombian qualified lawyer with more than three years of experience in a financial law practice advising fintech companies and regulatory topics. He is currently pursuing his LLM in finance and is working as a research assistant with their regulatory and investment funds team at Ashurst in Frankfurt am Main. Dr. Conrad Ruppel's expertise lies in financial markets supervisory law and litigation. His practice covers all areas of investment and financial markets law. Thank you, Conrad and Nicholas, for joining our podcast and the very warm welcome at the Asher's offices in Frankfurt. Conrad, thank you again for joining us in a new episode of the Dealmakers podcast series. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thank you very much, Nicholas, for having me. I'm a partner in the Frankfurt office of Ashurst. I focus on a broad range of regulatory topics. For example, we help clients with license procedures and we focus on many other aspects that comes with financial regulation, for example, asset management and investment banking. In recent years, my focus has shifted to digital assets. And in that context, I advise clients with respect to crypto regulation, e-money regulation, and anti-money laundering law is also a very important aspect. Amazing. Now, let's start from the basics. Could you briefly introduce the concept of crypto asset? And basically, what is it all about? Sure, Nicolas. So maybe first, before getting to the legal concept of crypto assets, it's probably worth to shed some light on the underlying technology. So in very simple terms, distributed ledger technology, DLT, is a decentralized database that is operated and managed across participant nodes. And each of these nodes have a copy of the whole ledger. They validate the information and help to reach a consensus about accuracy of information recorded. So it's in my view, therefore, important to, to distinguish, for example, between cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether from its underlying technology. DLT can be used for many use cases in the financial market and real economy that have basically nothing to do with, with volatile cryptocurrencies. Actually, that's very interesting, Conrad, because cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are usually the first topic that arises when talking about DLT. Appreciating that you are a lawyer and that you primarily deal with legal matters, could you please elaborate a bit on the underlying technology and advantages of DLT? Let's focus on technology itself. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Nicolas. I will try to do my best. So happy to elaborate a bit on this also because, of course, the choice of the technology has legal implications. For example, the question needs to be answered when exactly a contract or trade is concluded in a DLT securities transaction. This is called finality, after which information that has been recorded on the ledger cannot be changed anymore. So there are various consensus mechanisms. For example, proof of work, which I think is, is quite known and many people probably already heard of it, that is used by Bitcoin, where so-called miners compete with each other to solve complex mathematical problems to eventually validate the information and be able to, for instance, add a new block to a blockchain in which the information is actually stored. An alternative consensus mechanism that I see more often in practice is a proof of stake. 
where validators in principle have the same job as in the concept of proof of work, so which is to validate the information, but they are selected. So the validators, uh, the nodes are selected based on the number of stake coins they have. So this proof of stake mechanism has a reputation of being more environmental friendly than proof of work where miners are required to use computer and electronic power to actually solve these complex mathematical problems. You are actually touching a really relevant point involving our understanding of this new technology. What is the actual relationship between DLT and blockchain? We seem to notice that these two terms are used as synonyms. Is there a difference? That is a common question. And in general, blockchain is a specific type of DLT that includes the creation of blocks in which the information is stored. So you could broadly say all blockchains are distributed ledgers, but not all distributed ledgers are blockchains. Getting back to the question around advantages, as you have mentioned the, the technology, I think it worth to say that DLT is considered to be relatively safe and secure, also because the database cannot be changed easily due to the aforementioned complex validation processes like proof of stake, proof of work. And in addition, the technology and the use of smart contracts uh, promises cost and time efficiencies that allow, for example, to conclude securities transactions in a very short time frame. I mean, these features of immutability and security seems to be like a stimulus for the use of such technology. Taking the approach to a practical side, we did some press research and we figured out that the Asher's team actually advised Goldman Sachs with a digital asset platform. Did these advantages play a role in this transaction? Yes, certainly. So I think this is a good example of a digital assets platform that, that indeed facilitated issue and registration, settlement and custody of digital securities that were issued by the European Investment Bank. And speaking of advantages, indeed, the exchange of the security against cash in a securities transaction would usually take two or more days, whereas on the or on a DLT platform, this can be done instantly, which means in a very short period of time by using DLT and smart contract applications. So digitization can lead to more operational efficiency in the financial market more broadly and also increase data transparency, of course, because it's easier if you use DLT, for instance, to track ownership, trading flows, as well as other type of information. Fascinating. This efficiency seems to benefit all participants of the financial markets. We think it is essential to understand the advantages of the technology behind crypto assets itself. Nevertheless, Conrad, a question arises. Technology is always evolving. It seems a bit difficult to create a legal definition of crypto assets, though. What is the legislator's approach here? Indeed, that is a challenge from a legislator's perspective. So more or less all kinds of assets can be tokenized, right? So for example, financial instruments, money, real estate, or even works of art, yeah, thinking of NFTs. So in practice, you will find endless types of crypto assets. Therefore, finding a legal definition of crypto assets has been one of the core challenges the legislators needed to deal with, not only in Germany or in Europe, but I think around the world. So in Europe, various legal definitions already exist. And I think it's worth to point to the recently published EU crypto asset regulation, MICA, that will start to apply next year and already shapes the discussion of categorization of crypto assets in Europe generally. Accordingly, crypto assets are legally defined as a digital representation of value or rights, which may be transferred and stored electronically 
using distributed ledger technology or similar technology. And beyond this legal definition, MICA also includes certain subcategories reflecting certain types of crypto assets, such as stablecoins that can be or would be categorized as asset reference tokens or e-money tokens. Mikor seems to contemplate three subcategories of crypto assets. These are asset reference tokens, electronic money tokens, and other crypto assets such as utility tokens. But still, the question is there. Do you consider that these subcategories are going to be able to cover new DLT products in the future? That's, that's a good question, Nicolas. So the technology is indeed moving fast, but I consider this definition like the MICA, the definition in MICA to be sufficiently broad to adapt new technologies. So if you look at the definition itself, it speaks of similar or DLT or similar technologies. So I think this confirms that regulation intends to be technology agnostic. That's the general approach of the legislator, at least in the European Union and in Germany as well. Nevertheless, um, I think we, we need to be careful here because the new crypto asset regulation, MICA does not apply to assets or instruments that are already covered by existing financial market regulation. For example, security tokens that classify as MIFID financial instruments and deposits like bank deposits that are covered by the deposit protection regime are out of scope of MICA. These assets will remain regulated under existing regulations. So as one of three regulations of the EU digital finance package, MICA addresses crypto assets that are not yet regulated. Great. I mean, the EU digital finance package is a critical aspect to bear in mind when we are referring to the regulation of digital assets. But I think we have now entered the second part of the podcast, and it is the whole new regulatory landscape for crypto assets in the European Union. MICAR is indeed one of the most relevant regulations that will shape the classification, discussion, and basically the regulatory landscape in the EU. However, it is also relevant to dig into two other regulatory novelties. These are the Digital Operational Resilience Act, also known as DORA, and the DLT pilot regime. Let's start with DORA. How does it regulate or affect crypto assets in general? That's right, Nicolas. So DORA is also super interesting um, because after the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, the regulation tended to focus on financial risk and shortcomings that have been identified in the context of the global financial crisis, but did not specifically focus on IT and cyber risk. However, in the last decade and even before, the reliance of the financial market on IT systems increased substantially. For example, billions of transactions like securities transactions or trades are concluded every year in the financial market by using IT. In a parallel way, risks like IT risks or cyber attacks have increased as well in the last years. For example, yeah, in so-called denial of service attacks, IT systems can be confronted with so many electronic requests that the system can no longer handle them and actually fail to work if you think of a website or something else. So DORA, like MICA, is part of the EU digital finance package, as you just said, and it intends to protect the highly interconnected financial market from IT risks and related chain reactions. So DORA more specifically provides for basically three things, IT risk management requirements for banks, but for all other 
financial market participants. So it's not limited to certain type of financial market participants like investment firms or banks, but rather it really covers all types of financial market participants. That's why DORA is so important in practice. And it also establishes new reporting obligations. So for example, when you have a cyber incident in a bank or so, you have to report it. And there are also new rules for IT service providers. So not only for the financial market participants themselves, but the regulation also provides for new rules that address the service providers, similar to like outsourcing service providers with a focus on, on IT. DORA goes beyond crypto assets basically and addresses IT risks more broadly. It is really interesting to see how these new legal dispositions in the EU tend to mix a little bit digital assets with traditional finance. We're now evidencing straight ahead rules that are regulating both universes. But Conrad, talking about traditional finance and crypto assets or DLT technology, we are yet to touch upon what is currently happening with traditional financial instruments that may use actual DLT technology. Yeah. So picking that up, traditional, I mean, traditional financial instruments can, like securities, can already be issued on a DLT basis. Examples are the German electronic securities or Luxembourg digital bonds, for example, which provide for a bespoke securities law in that context to issue DLT securities. And in addition to this, and that's new, the recent DLT pilot regime, which is the third regulation of the EU digital finance package, provides a regulatory sandbox regime in which the trading and settlement of those digitized financial instruments can be tested by investment firms. So for a period of up to six years, license holders are exempted from certain existing regulations that don't quite fit with DLT. But at the end of the day, Conrad, due to its nature as a pilot regime, do you think that it will be used in practice? I mean, it's a pilot regime. I guess that temporality is a huge issue and it may affect the use of the, of the actual regime. Yeah. That's a super important point, also from a practical perspective. Of course, there are limitations. Therefore, it is a pilot regime. So it's a, it's a sandbox regime. And there are two limitations, I think, which are worth to be mentioned. One is the scope of the financial instruments that are eligible for the DLT pilot, which includes shares, bonds, and mutual funds. So more plain vanilla instruments, basically. And this has been criticized to be quite narrow, right? Because in particular, um, this would not cover structured products, which would have been an interesting case or an interesting type of financial instrument to be traded and settled on such a platform. In addition to this, there's another limitation, which is the market threshold for trading DLT financial instruments that has been set at 6 and 9 billion euros. And again, it has been criticized as being too low. Although regulation, I think, can always be better, right, depending on who you ask. So I think the regulator really gave a good head start and offers a clear framework for this type of, of activities, which is pioneering. Considering these novelties, what changes do you foresee for legal practitioners in terms of clients approaching or basically on the work itself? I think the, the combination of new technology, as we just spoke about, the EU digital finance package like MICA, DORA and DLT pilot regime, the new technologies, the new regulation, as well as existing regulation in the traditional financial market makes it a very exciting field of work. There are new forms of collaboration that have developed in these projects. For example, we work as lawyers quite closely with IT and DLT experts 
we need to understand the basic technology. And on the other hand, the engineers or IT experts at the same time need to get an understanding of the legal requirements. We know excellent colleagues, um, clients, in-house lawyers that do a tremendous job to actually connecting various stakeholders and different expertise, which I think is crucial. So for me, the close, let's say, cross-expertise collaboration uh, with clients on innovative and complex projects is, is super exciting and uh, yeah, grateful that we as a team can be part of, of that journey. It's really interesting because initially from an outsider point of view, one would think or consider that all these expertise areas work on their own. But actually, as you were telling us, this cross-expertise collaboration seemed like the correct path to face and address technological and regulatory challenges at the end of the day. In your experience, like in your practical projects, what makes a crypto asset or a digital asset project successful? These projects tend to be usually kind of a new territory for both, like for clients as well as sometimes in the market. And I think it helps if the client, or we can help the client also, of course, to have a clear view on relevant use cases and what should be achieved in that project. And that's also because on a more granular level, like the legal, technical design of a platform or of a specific product, like digital security, uh, will usually evolve over time. So they are influenced by, by legal considerations, business considerations, technology considerations, and that will change. But I think for a successful project, we need to focus on what is the outcome and what should be achieved. Therefore, to make a complex project successful, I think it's crucial actually to, to value this different expertise, as you just mentioned. So we have IT, we have financial regulation, we have anti-money laundering law and KYC topics. We have governance topics and, of course, the client's business objectives. They need to be connected. And that is a challenge. And that is also, I think, the most exciting part of this project. And another factor, not to forget, actually, uh, for a successful project is coordination with the regulator or with authorities like ECB or BaFin. They need to be able to measure the implications of a project and ensure a sustainable and, and functioning supervisory framework. So again, I think that collaboration in many ways and many directions is key. And it's our job to navigate the client in this exciting and complex environment. Great, Conrad. I think we are under the impression that the main conclusion arising from this type of project is the multidisciplinary collaboration, the intersection, the cooperation between law, business, technology, and basically the regulator is now essential to materialize the appropriate and successful use of this new technology. We had a quick lesson on core crypto technology. We brushed through relevant aspects of new legal dispositions in the EU and finalized with a practical approach on such topic. Thank you again for your time and availability, Conrad. It is always a joy to understand these complex topics from the hands of experts that deal with them on a daily basis. And we hope to see you as a guest once again. Thank you very much, Nicolas. Thank you for having me.